Matt for reading and for praying. And thank you all for being here this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Bobby Caliendo. I am the pastor of outreach and evangelism here at Riverbend Community Church. If I have not met you, I look forward to meeting you sometime soon. Um, also today, as many of you know, is January 5th. That means you and I can still talk about, not Christmas, no. We can, we can talk about New Year's resolutions. And this year, my wife and I, we spent some time together listening, considering what other pastors and people have to say about New Year's resolutions. Many people think they're a good idea. Many people think they're a bad idea. Many people think they are a waste of time. If you are already failing at your New Year's resolution, you are wasting your time already. But if we pause and evaluate resolutions for a moment, that's really what the Christian life is, right? Is that you and I are continuously resolute in imitating God. Whether that's in the beginning of the year, the middle of the year, or the end of the year. So what I want to talk about today specifically is a New Year's resolution that impacts our day-to-day -day life. And that resolution, brothers and sisters and friends, is imitating God. How can I imitate God? And you might be thinking, well, that's not very specific. Therefore, it is a bad resolution. I understand that it is a macro resolution. However, as we study this today together, we will see that imitating God impacts our day-to-day -day life. So specifically, we're going to do three things today. Number one, we're going to talk about what does it mean to imitate God. Number two, we're going to talk about why. Why should I imitate God? And number three, how. How should I imitate God? Before we get started, let's take another moment to pray. Lord, thank you so much for this church that we desire to exalt Christ in all that we do, Lord. In our worship, in our study of scriptures, Lord, we desire to exalt Christ in our community, to tell other people about our great Savior, to preach the gospel in our hearts and to our families and to our community. Lord, you are amazing. And I can't think of a better thing that we can do as followers than imitate you, Lord. That's what you desire, Lord. Help us to desire to do that, to be obedient to following you. Lord, we pray for this time together, Lord. We pray that your word would be heard clearly, that it would come upon hearts that are willing to receive your word. And just thank you, Lord, for this sweet time together that we can study your scriptures. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we jump into our text this morning, I just want to take a couple minutes, a quick, a quick couple minutes to talk about context. Who was the book of Ephesians written by and why was it written? Uh, as many as you know, the book of Ephesians, a letter to Ephesus, was written by Paul. And it is a prison epistle, meaning he wrote this marvelous letter while he was in jail. But the book of Ephesians, it does a couple things. It sheds clarity. It sheds clarity on two specific things. It says clarity on Christian doctrine, 
what we believe, but it also sets clarity on Christian practice. And the reason that it sets clarity on Christian doctrine and practice is because likely there was a lot of confusion in the church of Ephesus on what to believe and what to do. Kind of like the world we live in today. And there's a couple reasons why I believe it was very confusing for the church of Ephesus. Number one was there was a lot of false teachers. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 4 and 7, you will see that there was a lot of false teachers plaguing the church in Ephesus. Another reason why there was perhaps some confusion in the church of Ephesus is because there was many cultural influences on the church. Kind of like today. Specifically, in Ephesus, there was a temple. There was a temple to a great god, but they thought it was a god. It's called Diana or Artemis. And this temple specifically was considered one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world. And within this church, they did some strange stuff. One of the things that they did was very strange, that they would get very, I'm looking for the right word, intoxicated. I wanted to say wasted, but I don't know if that's a good word to say from the pulpit. They got wasted. And their goal of getting wasted was this. The drunker they got, they thought the higher they got to God. So the more drunk I am, the closer to God I am. Crazy, right? So much so that there were archaeological digs in the area of Ephesus where they saw holes in the grounds within the temples. And the holes in the ground were there because they would get so drunk or close to God that they would get sick. And then once they got sick, they would keep drinking because they wanted to get even closer to God. So the church of Ephesus, false teachers, false practice. But Ephesus also was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, Ephesians, or the church of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, was also a very important economic, educational, and political place. So in context, Ephesians, the church of Ephesus, had many competing views, false gods, false teaching, competing temptations, yet was very solid economically, politically, and educationally. Sound familiar? So the, the letter of Ephesus, again, provides clarity for doctrine and practice for them, but also for us. There are times we need clarity. There's false teaching happening everywhere. There's false practice happening everywhere. So reading and studying the book of Ephesus will benefit all of us. So let's again, with that context in mind, read our verse. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So what? You see the key word there, imitate. What does it mean to imitate God? The Greek word for imitate is memetas, which means to mimic. That's where we get that Greek word, or that's where we get our English word to mimic from this word imitate. But what does it mean to mimic? Mimic means to copy specific characteristics. To copy specific characteristics. Ever mimic someone before? I have. I think across our culture today, there's a tendency to mimic speakers, leaders, and sports figures. But have you ever stopped and really tried to mimic someone before? 
and really study them. I know as a, as a teenager and as a young man, I desired, please don't laugh, to be a professional surfer. Wanted to do it. But the only way I saw that I could achieve that goal was to mimic the pros. Anyone else in this room desired to be something great when they were young? So you mimicked great people. In my personal view, I mimicked other surfers. But back then, in order to mimic a surfer, you know what I would do? Watch surfing videos over and over and over again. And I would stop and rewind. Stop and rewind. I was focused. I was looking at their hands. I was looking at their feet. I was looking at their positioning. And then when I was done mimicking, guess what I would do next? I would get on my skateboard, try to do the same thing, arms here, feet there, and there. And then when it was time to finally go surfing, I was ready to mimic the first wave I caught. What do you think I did? I went up to one of my friends and I said, did I look like him? And more often than not, the answer was, No, hence why I'm here today and not a professional surfer. (laughs) So as you can see, as I'm talking about mimicking a professional surfer, you will see that there was great focus that I had, an intensity to do it. Likewise, as followers in Christ, we should desire to mimic him, to look closely at what the scriptures say. You and I both know that the word of God is God's revelation to us. And as we study it, we get to see who God is. And as followers of Christ, we ought to be focused on mimicking and imitating God. So if you're writing notes today, I'm going to give a definition of what it means to mimic. I think it would be a good idea perhaps for you to write it down. Based on my study of what it means to mimic, this is what it means. In studying the Bible, this is what it means to imitate God. It is studying the Bible, the self-revelation of God, and mimicking him. It is being prepared to mimic him and asking others if you are growing and how you are imitating God. Does that make sense? I'm going to read that one more time because I think it's helpful. It is studying the Bible and mimicking God. It is being prepared to mimic him and asking others if you are growing in how you are imitating Christ. But if you're like me and someone says to you, you ought to mimic God, that sounds overwhelming. Think about that. Let's not be passive. Imitating, mimicking the living God of the universe, a daunting task. So if you and I are going to be serious about mimicking God, guess what? We have to be motivated. So what I'd like to do for the next couple minutes is give us three reasons why you and I should be strongly motivated to imitate God, to mimic God. Reason number one is this, and you should write this down. I think this is a good thing for you to write down. The reason I should imitate God, number one, is this, is because I love God. I love God for who he is and what he has done in my life. If you study Ephesians chapter 1 verses, if you, excuse me, if you study Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, you will see that there is an overflow that shows us the character of God and what he has done in our lives. Specifically, chapters 1 through 3 show us the benefits that you and I have with union in Christ. If you study this section of scripture, you will see that over 11 times this phrase, union with Christ, is expressed. And by studying what God does in our lives, 
guess what? You and I are more motivated to mimic him because we love him. So what I'd like to do for the next couple minutes is give a quick overview of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and give us specific reasons why we ought to love God and desire to serve him. But before I do that, I want to read a quote from John Piper, and I think this is a very important quote as we're going through this text together. It says this. This is what John Piper says. The right knowledge of God does not glorify God until it produces the right affections for God. Why are you and I quickly studying Ephesians chapter 1 through 3? Because we want to have the right affections for God. Let me read that quote one more time. The right knowledge of God does not glorify God until it produces the right affections for God. Brothers and sisters, friends, family, God is more satisfying than anything this world can offer. More satisfying than food, intimacy, money, sports, or social media. He is more worthy than anything. And as we see that in Scripture, our desire ought to be to follow him and imitate him. So if you open your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 1, I want to highlight a couple things. And again, as I'm highlighting these things, it's motivation for you and I to, to imitate Christ. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, you'll see a great expression here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says this. This is what the Bible says. In him we are holy and blameless. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. In him we are holy and blameless. Now think about that for a second. Think about all the times you have sinned. Think about all those pranks that you did in elementary school. Think about all that trouble you got in middle school, in high school. Oh my goodness, think about your 20s. Oof. Think about all the sins and all the rebellion you had towards God during those times. Think about 2019. Who sinned against God in 2019? And all the humble people raised their hand. Yes. Think about all the things we sinned against God in 2020, only five days in. But yet, as sinful people, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that in him, through our union in Christ, guess what? We are holy and blameless. Wow. I think that's enough to want to imitate God right there. Amen? But let's keep going. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. This is what Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says. In him, we have redemption through his blood. What does redemption mean? Redemption means this, paying ransom to God for the release of a person from bondage. Brother, sister, you have been bought out of the slave market of sin because of the blood of Christ. And the crowd said, amen. amen. The blood of Christ was shed for me. It was shed for you. We were redeemed by the sacrifice of Christ. Now, this might sound a little mystical, but I want you to do something with me real quick. I want you to stop and ponder and say to yourself, close your eyes and say to yourself, the blood of Christ was shed for me. And say your name. The blood of Christ was shed for me. Amen. Isn't that miraculous? So again, as we're studying Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, real quick, 
We're looking for reasons why we love God, and they're so clearly stated. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, In him we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. I don't know if you significantly have ever sinned against a person before, but I know I certainly have. Um, I have not always been a Christian. My pre-Jesus days were pretty awful. And I remember one particular time, I probably did the most awful thing I could imagine to a friend. Embarrassing, shameful, not proud of it. And then God saved me. And one of the things that the Lord had me do was to call this person and say, hey, and some of you in this room may have to do this. It's honoring to God to ask other people for forgiveness. So I sinned against a dear friend of mine. And I remember calling him on the phone. And you can imagine, imagine if you're in this spot, you called an old friend, didn't know that I sinned against him. And I was going to tell him, this is what I did against you. My throat was like a frog. It's like, I want to tell you something. Nervous, ashamed, and embarrassed. And I told him, I sinned against you. And he wasn't a Christian at the time, but you know what he said? I don't even remember. And of course I forgive you. Amen, hallelujah, praise God. So as we're thinking about our lives and think about if we were to die today apart from Christ and we were to bring the mountain of sin that is in our life and we would present them before God and God says to you and to me, I forgive you. That's amazing. Check out First John chapter 1, verse 9. It says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and, cling, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Through, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like Wool, great Bible verse to memorize, Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Another reason that you and I should love God and desire to imitate him can be found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And this is what it says. In him we have obtained an inheritance. In him we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven that is eternal. It will not perish. It will not rust. It will be forever. But notice in a verse 11, it says this, in him we have obtained, obtained, meaning that our inheritance is secured already. It's waiting for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says this, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, we as believers in Christ are fellow heirs with Christ. Another reason why we should love God and desire to in, uh, imitate him is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says this, You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Through faith in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. As a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us. And many of you have heard of a king in days past. If they were to send a scroll or a letter, they would have a ring. And they would dip their ring into what? Wax. And they would put that wax on the edge of the scroll. And that marking sealed the document, but also showed that that document was under the authority of the person who sent it. That document was showing ownership. 
through the seal. You and I have been sealed. We have the Holy Spirit. That means you and I are God's personal possession. You belong to God. And if you belong to God, guess what? There is security in your salvation. You don't have to worry about being perfect because you are his. Amen? And also, as people who are or God's personal possession, it's also very important to know that we will be with him forever. It is secure. One last reason before we move on. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, this is another great reason why we ought to love God and desire to imitate him. In Ephesians chapter 5, or chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, this is what the Bible says. Through, your, through our union with Christ, we are given new life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Let's read it together. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Let me just uh, give a firm statement of the obvious. When you're dead, you have no pulse. You are dead. No ability Nothing. For some reason, when you tell people that they were dead, they don't fully get it. Like, you're dead. You have no ability to do anything. So let's keep that in mind as we're reading Ephesians chapter 2. Even when we were dead, spiritually dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. Woo! By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has given us new life, and we have the ability to overcome sin, and we have eternal life because he took dead people and resuscitated them, gave them life. So again, what are we talking about today? Imitating Christ. That sounds like a heavy task, but why should I do that? Because I love him, and I love him for the following reasons. In him, we are holy and blameless. In him, we have the redemption through his blood. In him, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. In him, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In him, we are given new life. We are given eternal life. It is no wonder why John Calvin said that Ephesians is one of his personal favorites. You can't help but see the love of God written all over it. Amen? But brothers and sisters, um, this is a great amount of things that we have in Christ. But I also want to give a slight caution and a warning. Sometimes as we meditate and reflect on all the blessings that we have in Christ, there could be a temptation to be complacent. I have everything I have in Christ. going to chill out in my spiritual easy chair can be a temptation, right? However, God has not called us, us to that life. In response to the great riches that we have in Christ, we des should desire to serve and imitate him. Our spiritual blessing should not cause laziness, but should cause a desire to serve even more. But also, I want to speak to the non-believer in the room today. In, a, in the size, a crowd this size, I'm sure there's a few people, if not more, have not placed their faith in Christ. For some reason, I'm not too sure, but there's a, I'm sure there's some people in this room who have not done that. A teenager, perhaps, a young adult, a retiree, a father or a mother. Undoubtedly, there's people in here who don't believe in Christ. I just want to speak to you for a moment. 
if you do not place your faith in Christ, you are not holy and righteous before God. You have not been redeemed. You do not have the forgiveness of sin. The wrath of God remains upon you. So if you're that person today, I plead with you. Today is the day of salvation. Place your faith into a glorious Savior. Amen? Amen. And if you say, well, Bobby, that sounds good. I want to do that. I want to love God. I'm just not good enough. If you're a person who thinks that way, guess what? You're right. You are not good enough. That's why you need the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ only comes through faith. So today, place your faith in Christ. But there's other reasons why you and I should imitate Christ. Number one is because who he is and what he's done for us. But number two, you'll see in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it's a command. Paul is commanding the church to imitate God. It's a plea. We are to live in a manner that is worthy of the immeasurable blessings that we have in Christ. But there's a third reason why you and I should be imitators of God, and you'll see it in the text. It says this, as beloved children, as children that are loved by God, we should be imitators of Christ. Through faith in Christ, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, we are adopted into his family. We are now associated with him. Think about that. When your kid goes to the store, this would never happen to your kids, I'm sure. I'm sure everyone's, everyone in this room, they have kids that are always well-behaved, has never ever thrown a temper tantrum, or nothing like that. Your kids are perfect. But if your kid's not perfect, there's likely been a time where you're standing in the food aisle at the store and they wanted a piece of candy and you said no. And what happened? Not your kid, someone else's kid. You saw someone else's kid do this. They fell on the floor, got a little crazy. And as your kid was getting a little crazy on this floor, what were you doing? Whoa. You're stepping away from the child. Why? Because you were embarrassed. Because that child is associated with who? You. However, when your child is being awesome and they said, Mommy, I'd really like that Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And you say, No, little Johnny. And he says, Yes, Mommy. You're like, This is my kid right here. My kid. Your kid's crazy. My kid, perfect. And why are you so proud of your kid in that moment? Because that kid is what? Associated with you. So there's lots of things that you and I can say about being children of God. But one thing I want to emphasize today is that through faith in Christ, we are associated with God. Therefore, we should be motivated to be good imitators, to be good ambassadors of Christ. I know as a young child, um, I spent a good amount of time with my dad. So much so where at a time, I almost felt like I was one of his friends, one of his buddies. He would take, he has a Harley Davidson motorcycle. And as a teenage boy, a young kid, nothing feels cooler than being on a Harley with your dad. Think about that gas, motorcycles, tattoos, you felt cool. And so I did things with my dad. He took me fishing, he took me places, he took me on his big truck. We did things together. But as I was around him and his friends, I did everything I could to play it cool, to make him proud to be a good ambassador that I was his son. Why? Because I wanted to bless him. I wanted to show other people that I respected my dad and I loved my dad and I was grateful to be along for the ride. 
I'm more than grateful to be along on the ride with God. Are you? We are his children. We are associated with him. God, help me be good ambassador. So again, today we're talking about being imitators of God. It's a big task. But there's many reasons why we ought to desire to do this. Number one, because we love him. Number two is the scriptures tell us it's a command, it's a plea from Paul that we ought to do this. Number three, as it says in the text, as beloved children, you and I through faith in Christ are now associated with our heavenly Father. But the next question is, how? How do I do this? That's a big task. Can you give me some specifics on how I can achieve this goal? The first thing, and I I think you ought to write this down too, I'm going to give you some ways on how you can imitate God, uh, probably about three or four, and I want to tell you some of these ways. Number one is this. It's to understand it is impossible without God. Imitating God is impossible without his help. We need to have a humble and contrite spirit and realize that we cannot go forward in imitating God unless he is working in us and through us. And we see this very clearly in Scripture that the Holy Spirit, God, is primarily involved in the process of us becoming more like Christ, becoming more sanctified, becoming imitators of God. And the Scriptures make it clear that the Holy Spirit and God are the primary role players in our sanctification and us being imitators of God. Let me read a couple of scriptures to reinforce that point. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, it says this, this is what the Bible says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Who's making you more like Christ? The God of peace. So we see that the, God plays a primary role in us becoming more like Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Who sanctifies us? The Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 2, or chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. What are the fruits of the Spirit? So we see over and over again the primary role players in us being imitators of God is God himself. And so as we're trying to imitate God, we need to stop and realize I can't do this big task without you. I need you to help me, to mold me, and shape me. I have not arrived. I have not arrived. Lord, I need you to help me be a better imitator of Christ. Yet, that does not mean that you and I should not play an active role in the pursuit. Let God, or let go and let God, is really not the biblical answer. Trust and obey is a biblical answer. Trust God, but be steadfast in obeying him and trying to be more like Christ. We see in James chapter 1, verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word. James is telling you what? Get busy in imitating God. Rely on God. Be humble. Trust him, but be obedient in the pursuit. We see in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us to make every effort. We're trying because we love God. We also see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, pursue peace. Is pursue pursue peace? Is that a a verb? 
that you and I are supposed to do? Absolutely. So when it comes to becoming imitators of God, we want to fully trust God, but we also want to be steadfast in our obedience. We're going to do it. We're going to pursue it. And I think uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, kind of show the harmony of, of both of these things together. This is what Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says. Work out your salvation with fear and who's doing that? You are. Let's read it again. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You participate. For it is God who is at work in you. I'm trusting God. I'm relying upon him to save me. I can't do it without him, but I'm making every effort. However, you and I know that we will not be perfect in our pursuit of imitating God. Agreed? That's why I am so grateful so grateful. You should write this down for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So grateful for this verse. It says, God, didn't, uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him I might have the righteousness of God. So even when you mess up, guess what? You still have the righteousness of God. Yes! Praise God. Hallelujah. So, how can I imitate God? Number one is knowing that imitating God is impossible without God. Number two, how can I imitate God is to be in the word, to study the scriptures. As I said earlier, the Bible is the self-revelation of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this year on January 5th, start a reading plan. Get serious. But if you're not an avid reader, that's tough for you, I would really challenge you to make a personal vow. Say, Lord, even if I'm busy, I'm making a vow today that I will read at least one chapter a day. I'm going to do it. Because look at all these things that God has done for me. I see him so clearly in Ephesians. I love him. I desire to be like him. And I need to mimic him. In order to mimic him, I have to know who God is, what he's like. I'm making a vow today. I'm reading at least a chapter. If you want to read five chapters, Praise God, you're sanctified. But if you have a reading, do something. Let's get busy, okay? Also, how can I imitate God? Um, number three is this. Meditate on biblical passages that reference God's character. Let me read that again. How can I imitate God? Meditate on biblical passages that reference God's character. And a great place to start, for example, is holiness. I teach a growing in Christ class every Sunday at 915 and room 186 if you want to come check it out. You like that little slip in there? It's a good class. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is the holiness of God. And the reason we spend so much time talking about the holiness of God is because it is the most repeated attribute attributed to God in all the Bible. Not love, not mercy, but holiness. So if I'm serious about imitating God, I need to know what holiness is. And if we see very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, this is what Peter tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You shall be holy, for I am holy. So if we're serious about imitating God, one of the things I have to do is ask myself, am I holy? But what does it mean to be holy? Um, there's a lot of different things out there about holiness. Um, John MacArthur defines holiness as this. It means untouched, unstained by evil, 
He is absolutely pure and perfect. And again, this idea of holiness isn't new to the Old Testament. We, uh, to the New Testament, we see it also in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, we see that Yahweh's desire for the nation of Israel is for them to be holy. God wants his people to be different. Because by being different, you draw attention to yourself and you draw attention to God. So God's desire throughout Scripture is that you and I would be different, that we would be untouched by evil, absolutely pure and perfect. Wayne Grudem defines holiness like this. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. But I really, really think the most helpful definition of holiness is found in a book by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. It's a great book that helps us understand who God is. But R.C. Sproul gives a very insightful definition of what it means to be holy. He says this, that purity, in terms of the definition of holiness, is not the primary meaning of holiness. It's a secondary meaning. And holiness is not a single attribute, but a transcendent attribute. And when I say transcendent, that means to be exceptionally different. So God is holy. That means he's exceptionally different in his love. He's exceptionally different in his mercy. He's exceptionally different in, our, in his justice, in his kindness. Amen? So when we think about the holiness of God, it means God is exceptionally different. So as we're, I'm trying to imitate God, one of the natural questions that I would ask myself is this, that you should ask yourself, we all should ask ourselves together, am I significantly different? Am I? Are we significantly different in our thoughts? Are we significantly different in our emotions? Are we significantly different in our behavior? God has saved us for a purpose, brothers and sisters, is to be different, to imitate God with all of our heart. But consider these questions as we think about and meditate on what it means to be significantly different. Ask yourself some of these questions. Are you significantly different in your relationships? Are you significantly different in your relationships? Husbands, if I were to go to your friends, your neighbors, to your workplace, and ask if you t treated your wife, loved your wife, in a significantly different way, what would they say? Would they say, I don't, I don't see nothing different. She's life the same as anyone else. I don't know, no big deal. Are we holy in our relationships with our wives? Wives, are you significantly different with the relationship with your husband? Are you like everyone else? The world, if you look at what the world, how the world or wives view their husbands, the world views their husbands as someone who just gets in the way of what you want to do, right? Turn on a sitcom. The, the husband is a stumbling, unsmart person all the time, right? But wives, are you exceptionally different in how you treat your husband? Do you respect him? Do you honor him? Do you greet him with a humble spirit? Professionals, if you're a business owner or if you work somewhere, most of you probably do, would your business associates describe you as significantly different? Would they even know you went to church? And if they did find out if you went to church, would you be would they like, oh, you do? Where would they know? Are you significantly different in the people you interact with at work? Also, students, if I were to go to your sixth grade class 
seventh grade class, twelfth grade class, your college class, your high school class, your elementary school class, and I would ask one of your friends, is Susie different? Do you think she's a Christian? Would they say, oh, absolutely? Or would they say, I don't know. So as we're thinking about God, imitating God, are we holy? Are we significantly different in our relationships? But are also we different in the way that we think? The world is thinking about social media. The world is thinking about sports. They're thinking about their possessions. But the scriptures tell us this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. It says that we, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. As imitators of God, we should be different in the way that we think. Are you still thinking about the football game last night? I'm a Patriots fan, but I forgot about it already. I don't care. Think about God, because he's more important, more satisfying than anyone else. Are we different in our joy? Would people say you're happy? We're supposed to be significantly different in our joy. And why should we be significantly different in our joy? Because you've been forgiven, redeemed, purchased. People should know that you have joy in Christ. And we see this so clearly. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the, the parable of the, king, of the hidden treasure, we see that the man buys the field with what? Joy. When he thinks about the kingdom of heaven, he's willing to sell everything with joy because it's so valuable and precious. Are we a significantly different people in our joy? Are we different in the things that we talk about? What does everyone talk about? Weather. How many times, let's be honest, no one's looking. How many times this morning have you said it's cold outside? Everyone talks about the weather, right? Everyone also talks about your grandkids. And listen, I want you to talk about your grandkids, but everyone talks about their family and their kids and the weather and sports. You want to be different? How about you start telling people about the joy you have in Christ, where our hope resides? Things start getting interesting then. That's when you're significantly different because you're willing to talk about the most important thing, Christ. And if you feel uncomfortable with sharing your faith in a tactful way. Next week in room 186, <laughs> uh, I'm teaching a class. It's called Conversation Evangelism. How to naturally transition from a normal conversation talking about the weather to talking about Jesus. How can I do that without being a jerk? Because remember, there's a fine line between being a prophet and a jerk. We don't want to be the jerk. We want to be the prophet that speaks truth into other people's lives. Next week, room 186, 915. If you want to learn how to do that, I'll be there. We'll be talking through this together. And lastly, I'll say this. <laughs> I like that plug. And um, we are, are we different in the way we treat sin? Are we different in the way we treat sin? I think sometimes there's a Christian tendency to see how close we can get to sin without getting burned. I'm going to get close like everyone else, but I'm not going to fully do it. I'm going to get close. Is that being significantly different in the way we treat sin? How does Jesus tell us to treat sin? He says, take drastic measures. If you're tempted to sin with your hands, what's Jesus say? Cut off those hands. Oh, 
He doesn't really, in case you're wondering, boys and girls who are under 10, Jesus doesn't really want you to cut off your hands, but he wants you to be serious about getting sin out of your life. If your eyes cause you to sin, what does Jesus say? Pluck them out. I remember the first time reading that as a young boy, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never doing this. This is crazy. But Jesus wants us to be serious in the way we treat sin, so much so that we're significantly different, that we're not getting close from it. We're taking radical measures to get it out of our lives. So if you're a person in this room and you're evaluating, am I imitating God in my holiness? Am I? And someone in this room might say, this is just too radical. I mean, that's, this is intense. I don't know if I want to stick out in the lost world. Well, you should. Did God stick out in the scriptures? God parted the Red Sea. Did these stick out? Heck yeah. Who else is parting the Red Sea? Only Yahweh is part, parting the Red Sea. Did Jesus raise dead people to life? And did he stick out? Yes. Did he cause people to be healed? Yes. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we see that God sticks out in a good way, an exceptional way. So should we. However, I'm not asking you to go to Kohl's or Macy's and buy some camel hair or go to Aldi's and buy some locusts and start eating on that. Don't want you to be too weird, but we want us to be different in the way we think, the way we feel, and the things that we do. We want to be in the world, but not of the world. We want to be radically different, so much so that we stick out in a good way. So, again, we're talking about how do I imitate God? I call upon God to help me. I am in his word, and I meditate on verses that highlight God's character. But let's go back to our text for a moment here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God. It's a big task, but God's going to equip me and help me to do that. As beloved children, as people who are associated with God, I'm motivated to do this and walk in love. So to be an imitator of God is also to what? To walk in, to walk in, to walk in love. That's right. To be an imitator of God is to walk in love. God at his core is love. The Bible tells us that God is love. And to love is to imitate God. To love is to be Christian. To love is to be Christian. And we can see the importance of love throughout the scriptures. We see that Jesus tells us the two greatest commandments are what? To love. To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love others. To be an imitator of God is to walk in love. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. This is what the apostle Paul says. If I have all faith as to remove mountains but do not have love, I have nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. To be an imitator of God is to love, to love other people. But how do I specifically walk in love? How about this? You duplicate God's love. And God's love is what? Sacrificial do you love in a sacrificial way or do we love in a convenient way? If you love somebody, you'll show your love by how much it costs you, right? 
How do we know that God loves us? He gave something great, something of great value. John 3, 16 tells us what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only. Ooh, we need to imitate God in loving people sacrificially, not conveniently, sacrificially. So if you're a person in this room and you're wondering about New Year's resolutions, what should I do? Next time I encounter Aunt Susie, I'm gonna love her in a sacrificial way because I love God. And then you're going to pause. And when you get out of your cars, you're walking to Aunt Susie's house. You're going to say, I'm going to love her in a sacrificial way. Your boss, your coworker, people that you don't like to be around, you're praying that God would change the way you love people because we're imitators of God and God loves sacrificially. How can we also imitate God in loving other people? Be gracious in your love. That means love people who don't deserve it. Does God do that towards us? Check out what it says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. It says, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. <laughs> Let me, I'm just, I want to read this one more time. It's amazing. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We do not deserve God's love, but he gives it to us anyways. He is gracious in his love. Are we gracious in our love? Are we loving people who do not deserve it all the time? So again, to be an imitator of God is to imitate God's love by walking in love and walking and loving in a way that is sacrificial, but also that is gracious. And this is my last point, and we'll end with this. Is if we go back to our text, you'll see that the very first part of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, starts with this word, therefore. Therefore, And anytime you see the word therefore, always it's a, the writer's reminder to go backwards. So anytime you see this word therefore, try to read in context, read a few sentences before. But let's look at therefore. So specifically therefore in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 is going back to Ephesians chapter 4 verses 31 and 32. And this is what Ephesians chapter 4 verses 31 and 32 says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander to be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ has also forgiven you. A key point of this text is forgiveness. To walk in love is to walk in forgiveness. If you are not walking in forgiveness and forgiving other people, what will happen? Verse 31, you will be bitter. You will be wrathful. You will be angry, you will slander, and you will malice. We don't want to be those things. We want to be kind. What is kind? Forgiveness. What is kind and tenderhearted? Forgiveness. So in order to walk in love also means to walk in forgiveness. So with that said, let's read those verses again. So let's read Ephesians chapter 4, 31 through Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 in its appropriate context. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, if you want to be kind, tender-hearted, if you want to be a forgiving person, what must you do? Be, be imitators of God. If you want to walk in forgiveness, what must you do? Be an imitator of God. 
as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We are to imitate God by walking in love and to walk in love is to walk in forgiveness. I would be remiss if I didn't hit on Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 real quick. Uh, It says this, that the sacrifice of Christ is a fragrant aroma. A fragrant aroma. We all know that the cross was a brutal sight. Does this verse tell us that God was pleased with brutality? No. This verse is telling us that God was pleased with what was happening on that cross. And on that cross, we see that Jesus gave everything And if you give everything, it costs you, and that shows God's great love. So on the cross, why was God pleased? Because Jesus gave everything, showing his love for the Father. Why else was it a fragrant aroma? Because the perfect character of God was seen through the holiness of Christ on the cross. On the cross, we can see the love of God. On the cross, we can see the holiness of God. On the cross, we see the forgiveness of God. Why is the cross a fragrant aroma? Love, forgiveness, holiness, fully displayed for mankind to be saved from their sins. Do we want to imitate this God? Absolutely. What did we talk about today, ladies and gentlemen? As believers in Christ, our desire is to imitate God because he loves us even when we're not worthy of his love. And we want to be imitators of God because we love him. Why do I want to do this? Because he's marvelous. How do I do this? I know that I can't do it without him. I also know that I need to be in his word. I need to meditate on verses that highlight the character of God. Also, I need to walk in love, and to walk in love is to walk in forgiveness. Love you guys. I hope this year in the small task, the big task, all task, that your desire would be to imitate God because he's an awesome God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, for showing us your love. You have a supernatural love, a love that costs, a love that is gracious, and a love that forgives. Lord, it can be overwhelming to think that as a believer, I would imitate you. But you don't leave us in our own strength, Lord. You give us your spirit. You mold us. You sanctify us. You guide us. You direct us. And when necessary, Lord, you discipline us, Lord, so that we can be more like your son. Lord, as we think about scripture, Lord, we pray as we understand scripture, Lord, that it would impact our affections towards you. Help this knowledge not to be knowledge, but to be heart transformational. Lord, help us to pursue you. Help us to lead our children towards you. Help us to engage our community with the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that we can sing about your praises and about your love. And I pray for the people here, Lord, that we would leave this place desiring to imitate our great God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.